Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you today, and I want to say thank you for um, all the folks that offered encouragement and prayers on our uh, very, very epic two-week road trip. Uh, We clocked over 5,000 miles and about 95 hours of driving is what the odometer tells me uh, on the rental van. So uh, it was was quite a trip. It was a good trip. Um, There was a lot going on, a lot of uh, more than just the... More than just our, the graduation and the commencement, you know, anytime you get together with family, there's a lot going on, a lot of good stuff going on. Um, but also, uh, at times, being with family creates friction. Um, and so I, I, had a, I had an incident with my father while we were out on our trip. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't really what he said, it was the way that he said it. Um, you know, parents, sometimes you can, be, you can be 38 years old and have four kids of your own and uh, and and they will say something that makes you automatically feels like it pulls you back to like when you were fourteen. And so then, even though you know that you should not and you know better, you start acting like you're fourteen. Yeah, that didn't go so hot. Um, didn't go so well. And you know, the problem was is I, I knew I knew it was wrong as soon as it was coming out of my mouth, right? I knew, I knew it was wrong as soon as it was coming out of my mouth. And I knew he was right as soon as it was coming out of my mouth. But you know what? <laughs> Didn't care. <laughs> Didn't care at that point in time. And, and so, like, for the, for, for the next few hours, we're both kind of, like, we're, we're in the same space, but we're, like, giving each other space, you know? We're we're in we're in grandma's house together, but like he's over there and I'm over here. We're just kinda doing our thing. Knowing that eventually we're gonna have to resolve this, right? At some point. But he's not ready to stop treating me like I'm fourteen and I'm not ready to stop acting like I'm fourteen. Um so we're not gonna do this yet. Why am I so reluctant? to tell my dad that I'm sorry sometimes. Even when I, man, even when I know that I'm wrong. Why, why was I so reluctant to do that when I was a kid? Why does that seem to be like a universal thing for us as kids? Why does it seem to be a universal thing for us as adults sometimes? And and, and why does it turn not just, I mean, the thing with my dad is, is probably the most pertinent thing. But why do, we, why do we have such a problem doing that with other people too? Not, 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 the, not the I'm sorry that's expected of us in, in, a, in, in our culture, okay? And, and, and let's be honest, the culture expects and I'm sorry here a whole lot more than it does where I come from. But does it even expect an I'm sorry that is actually a sorry? Or does it just expect it as a, as a matter of courtesy? More like, I'm really sorry you feel that way. Wait, okay, so does that actually mean that you're sorry? Or does that just mean that you're sorry that I feel that way? What did you actually just say to me? Hang on, let me think about that for a second, okay? Why is it so hard for us to engage in confession. Why is it so hard for us to, to utter those words, I am sorry, with 
actual meaning, with actual force behind them. Before I left on our trip, um, as a staff, every week we get together as, as much as we are able. Uh, it's been kind of crazy during the summer, obviously, since we've been all over the place. But we get together and we have staff devotional times, and, and we, we read through the scripture and we, and we ponder it, not, not, to, um, not to figure out what we're doing as a church or not to figure out what we're doing in leadership, but to feed our souls together because we need that. We believe that that's one of the greatest gifts that we can give to you as a congregation is that we are engaged in spiritual formation ourselves seriously. And so we do those things. And, and, we, and as we were doing it, we, we read this song. And it was amazing to me about our, our understandings um, that, that we came up with and, 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 and just the different views of confession that each and every one of us had, that, that Daniel had and that I had and that Monique had coming from our, our different backgrounds. And all of a sudden, we, we began to realize that we related the ideas of confession and the ideas of confession and repentance very, very differently. Um, not necessarily bad, but just differently. Or good, but just differently. And, and we started asking the question, what do these things exist for? Why do they matter? And so um, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks looking at these practices, the practice of confession, the practice of repentance, and, and just talk a little bit about how we can better incorporate them into our theology, what we believe, and our practice, what we do with what we believe. And the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to kind of dig into this psalm with us a little, because I know that we've heard this psalm a lot. In fact, I think that along with the 23rd psalm, there is probably no psalm that is quoted more. Um, it, it repeatedly finds its way into our songs. It finds its way into our readings. It finds its way into our sermons. Um, in churches all across the world. This may be one of the ones that we identify the most. And, and one of the reasons I think we do is there is a lot of emotion and there is a lot of intensity in this psalm, prayer, song, this, this, this begging, honestly, that, that comes out of this. We, we hear it, we feel it, it resonates with us. We want to be able to say we're sorry like David says he's sorry. And so this psalm resonates with us. But you can't understand what he's asking for if you don't understand what's been happening in this. Okay? And, and, and we'll, 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 do the, we'll do the G rating version of what's going on. But let's just say this. As the anointed king of Israel, David's job primarily is to be laying himself down in order to lead the people of Israel in the manner in which God intends them to grow as a nation. That's really his job description. Ooh, hey, that's cool. Whether it's, whether it's out on the battlefield fighting the enemies of God, whether it is leading in matters of justice and law, whether it is just in his own personal conduct, his business as the Lord's anointed, his business as king of Israel is to be about laying himself down in order to lead Israel in the way that God has desired them to go. And you always need 
a check and balance when you are the guy. Okay? Because what we have here is a, is a classic story of the one who is supposed to be a giver becoming a taker. And see, this was the thing that was supposed to, to, really, to really set Israel apart as a, a God-led monarchy as opposed to the other nations with their kings. And, and you hear it time and time again in the literature of the Old Testament that, that those other kings, they take from their people. But that is not what the king of Israel is supposed to be about. And, and, and of course, Samuel even kind of warns the people when they say, we want a king, we want a king. He even kind of warns them, look, there's going to, I mean, even though, even though there's this great ideal, let's be honest. There's going to be times in your history and the king is going to take, he's going to take your young men and he's going to send them off to battle. They're not going to come back. He's going to take your horses and send them off to battle, or he's going to take them to plow in his field instead of yours. He's going to take part of your grain. He's going to take part of your wine. He's going to take part of your oil. He's going to take your material goods. He's going to tax you for the good of the kingdom. And you're going to have to deal with that. He's also going to take your young women, and he's going to add them to his wives. And you're going to have to deal with that. And here we have a story of, one, David being human, which I appreciate. Okay, and it's not the only story of David being human, but it's probably the, 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 the story of David being the most human. All right? And instead of being the role that he has been given as the leader of Israel, the representative of how to live in right relationship with God and how to give of oneself in that, he decides to start taking. And once the taking starts, it's hard to stop. And so first he takes Bathsheba. And then he takes her out of her household. And then, in order to be able to justify what he's doing, he begins to start taking liberties with how you fight battle and how you issue orders. And he tries to take advantage of Uriah, her husband. Take advantage of his self-control. Take advantage of his vows as a righteous person. And finally, when none of that works, he takes some more and takes his life. When Nathan comes along, Nathan has to assume the role of a prophet. And, and this is the interesting thing is that you don't see prophets before you see kings. But as soon as you see a king, you have a prophet. Because you always need the counterbalance when you've got the guy. You always need another voice that's going to come in and be a check and balance. And from all, from all intents and purposes, it looks like that kind of unlike Saul and Samuel, who had a very, very rocky relationship as prophet and king, and, and a lot of the other prophets and kings have a very, very rocky relationship, right? Um, it seems as though Nathan and David have a very, very close relationship. That most times when Nathan needs to come and be that voice from the outside, that David says, yeah, I need that. I need that. I need that other voice speaking wisdom to me. And then there are a few times where we see that that doesn't happen. 
And, and, and this is one of those times where Nathan really has to come in and bring the full weight of confrontational reality to David's life. And so, I can't imagine, I mean, obviously what Nathan does, he does with a lot of, of tact and even a little bit of subtlety. He kind of, he kind of, he almost, he almost, I wouldn't say tricks, but, but he uses a really, really good way of allowing David to kind of walk into his own trap. And then is able to turn around and point the finger and say, okay, but see, that's you. You're the one who has taken something that's not yours and then taken again and taken again and taken again. And you've sinned. And what are you going to do about it? Now, the, the little prescript of this psalm says that, that David writes this in response to Nathan coming to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay? But one thing that I think is really interesting, and one thing I wanted to follow up with as we look at this psalm today, and as we talk about confession, was this idea that Lynn Anderson brought up at our retreat. Where he said, you need to realize most of the psalms that David wrote were in the later years of his life, after he hung up his sword and shield. After his warrior days were over and he was doing the Lamp of Israel days. You remember that conversation that we had? And I wonder about this psalm a little bit. Because there is a lot of raw emotion with it. And, and, and there's a lot of intensity in this psalm. But at the same time, my goodness, there is so much wisdom in it. And it is so eloquent um, it, is, it is constructed so well. It has some really deep observations about the reality of sin and the practice of being free of sin and the practice of being restored to God. And I wonder if, if this isn't one of those psalms, that actually David's looking back at that time, or maybe this is a psalm that he wrote earlier in the middle of, of, of all of that intense emotion, and he goes back and he looks at it, and he kind of reworks it a little bit and says, you know, and this is what I've learned. As I look back on that experience, as I look back on, on the need to be right with God and the confrontation of reality coming up against my sin and, and the need to be restored, here's what I've learned. And I want us to just take a few, I, I just want to observe a few things and, and, and take a, a look at a couple of things in this psalm that maybe can kind of give us some understanding about how we can practice confession more easily, looking at David's psalm. The first one is, if you notice, there is no specific reference to what sin he needs redemption from. And as soon as I saw that, I wondered, like, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that he comes out and says, you know, have mercy on me, O God, because I did this thing. Mm. And, you know, maybe if you're kind of skeptical and you're, and you're reading it, maybe you think that David's kind of glossing over the events while, show, while still showing, showing some sorrow. Maybe he's kind of like, you know, he's like kind of doing the, I am sorry that I've hurt your feelings. You know, that maybe he's not really, not really sorry. 
Or that maybe somebody's kind of tried to tie it up a little bit to kind of, you know, make it a little more politically correct for the king. Um, or, or, or maybe even just that that he is ex- he is expressing honest remorse but kind of doesn't want to really dig into the past that much. I have another idea. And it's this. What if it's because over the years... David has learned something about confession and sin. And simply this, it's one thing for us to apologize for wrong actions. This is one level conf- one level of confession. I can I can wrong someone and come back, like for example with my father, okay? I can come back to him and say, "You know what? I said that. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me?" And that's one level of confession. And I hope we'll say, yeah, it's okay. And, that, and that's pretty much what happened. You know, I was wrong, I was angry, I was upset. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Of course. Okay, we move on. But here's the thing. That's one level of confession. But there's another thing going on there, isn't there? There's a deeper thing of going, you know, Dad, we need to have a conversation about why it is that we keep doing this. Why, why does that keep happening? in our relationship sometimes. That level of confession is not necessarily transformative, is it? I can say, I'm sorry for doing this thing. Will you please forgive me? And you say yes, but that doesn't necessarily change anything about our relationship, does it? And I wonder if David has learned enough about confession to realize this is not about me saying, oops, I'm wrong, please forgive me. This is about saying, look, I need to change something here. And I'm not exactly sure how to do that. But I need your help to change that. I think it's when we're willing to peel back the surface and look at the deeper state of our lives that we understand that sinfulness is not a bunch of acts. Sinfulness is like a a systemic condition, right? And the language that David uses in verse 5, it's one of the most, it's one of the deepest, most perplexing parts of this psalm, okay? And, and he comes in, and in verse 5, he says things like this. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me, and yet you have desired faithfulness even in the woman you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Is he advocating a doctrine of original sin? I don't think so. This is something that's pretty foreign to the Hebrew mind, okay? Um, It's something that doesn't even come up until more than a millennia later than the rule of David. So I don't think that he's somehow got some, you know, doctrinal thesis back here way, 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 way before anybody else came up with it. That's not what I think he's saying. Instead, let's look at this as this deeper confession. It's not just saying I've sinned in action, but that I am, as part of my existence, a sinful person. My problem isn't the need of a pardon for a particular wrong, though I do need that too. My problem is that I need deliverance from the predicament of myself a lot of times. That's the real issue. It's not this action. This action just is a symptom that's highlighting the deeper issue. 
And so when I go to confession, when I actually bring that up, I can either go to one level that just deals with the action, or I can go deeper and say, you know what, this actually is just a symptom of a bigger problem that's really, really deeply rooted in my soul, Lord. I can even say that with other people, can't I? And it's not a cop-out. You know, it's not, it's not like you're saying, like, I'm sorry, it's just the way I am. That's not even it either. It's saying, you know what, there's this action, but then there's something deeper. And I'm really, really troubled by that. I mean, this is, this is the part where we are actually honest in our confession, where we dig deeper, not into the what I did, but into the real area where change needs to happen, why I do it, Right? And I think this is a real important shift of thinking for us because I think this is where confession changes from being something that we, we, it feels like it's pulling teeth to where it can be something that actually leads to freedom because it expands confession beyond the bounds of what I'll call moral law. And let me say what I mean, that, say what I mean by that real quick, okay? I would define moral law as this idea of, of identifying and categorizing right and wrong behavior, okay? We think something is moral, it is right. We think something is immoral, it is wrong, but it's mostly in the realm of behavior, okay? It is hard to categorize thinking as immoral as easy as it is to categorize action as immoral or moral, right? Does that make sense? So we're pro- if we're if we're gonna if we're gonna look at confession just in terms of moral law, then it's just in terms of okay, I did this, it was wrong. I know I should do this right instead. Will you forgive me for this wrong action? Okay, I'm gonna do this right instead. It operates completely on one level. If you look at this psalm. There is so much more going on. There is so much more that needs to be resolved than just writing the wrong actions. And let's be honest, as far as David's gone here with this, how can he even write the actions? You can't. You cannot undo murder. You cannot undo adultery. So I don't even know that confession at this point is him saying, I was wrong, I need to do this instead. Okay? He has to go down into the deeper. And that's why he starts saying, look, I, this has been with me my whole life. This, this you know, even, even trying to be the person that you need me to be, has it, has it has failed my whole life. It doesn't matter how much I try to be Messiah. It doesn't even matter with your anointing. I'm still this guy. I'm still this way. What am I going to do? And if you think of where all the intensity and the emotion comes from, it's because that's, that's what David's really running up against, right? It's even more than the actions, which are horrendous in and of themselves. It's what the actions represent. That there is this systemic thing inside of him. Okay? Don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying moral, wrong, moral law is bad. It's a good thing, but as we know from Israel and today, we tend to make moral law try to do something that it was never intended to do, create righteousness in somebody. We think that right action equals righteous person. But the example shows that just observing a moral law 
You can't do that. And, and let's be honest, even if you could observe moral law perfectly, let's talk about the time of Jesus where we had people that were totally invested in observing moral law. And you keep that untethered from grace, and it actually births a whole host of sins like pride and judgmentalism and self-righteous behavior. All in the name of observing moral law. So, I mean, we have to look at confession. We have to look at the Christian life and something bigger than that. We already know that. But here's the thing. If confession stays mired in that moral law by itself, we get some really, really disastrous attitudes. Confession's supposed to be an, an honest acknowledgement of my sinfulness and God's righteousness. And Psalm 51's really, really frank about both of those things. But that's not, again, I'll say that's not why David confesses, and that's not why he writes this psalm. And this is where I think our understanding of confession can become so harmful at times and where it can be so difficult for us is that we do not see it as freeing. We see it, as I often did as a kid, as I sometimes do now, as just piling the guilt on, as just increasing the burden. We already know we're failing. We can't seem to do much about it. And now we have to admit it to everyone on top of that. Great. Just what I wanted to do. There's nothing redemptive about this kind of confession. So is it any wonder why we're so hesitant to practice it? If there's nothing redemptive about it. And so in order to rightly understand this psalm, in order to really rightly understand what David's doing here, you have to look at the beginning. Consider the first sentence of this psalm. Have mercy, be gracious to me according to your unfailing love. That frames the entire thing. We can't understand any of this psalm without really rooting it in this first piece. For David, for us, for humanity, confession is not rooted in observing moral law. It is not, it is not rooted in, I didn't do the right thing and I need to do the right thing. Okay? Confession is rooted in the ability to access God's grace and mercy. Think about that for a second. If confession is the gateway to accessing the mercy of God... If confession is the way to allow his grace to really come in and take a hold of me, now all of a sudden, this is not something that I am hesitant to do. It is something that I am really, really desiring to do. Because I need it. It doesn't make light of our sin. It doesn't make light of righteousness. Instead, by seeing confession as being able to access God's grace, it acknowledges this simple fact. God alone has the authority over my life, and that, that includes the authority to transform me. I cannot do that by myself. 
I cannot get to the root of the issue by myself. And so every time I confess, what I am doing is I am bringing it back to God and saying, I need you to help me access this. I need you to help me change this. I need you to help me get to the root of the issue. I mean, without it, we either, we either drift in one of two ways. Where, where, where we don't confess and we just kind of harden ourselves up. Or where confession only goes half the way and we kind of get into this miserable sinner theology of like, well, I just I keep confessing, but I keep confessing with this idea that I, it's never going to get any better. And neither of those things are redemptive and neither of those things are life-giving. And neither of those things are what God designed us to do in relationship with him. But if I'm willing to see confession as the opening to reestablishing that deep relationship with God wherein he can move and he can transform and he can do what he wants to do, that also unbars my access to relationship with him. It makes the relationship right again. And Jesus really keys on this idea. You, go, you think about Luke 18, where he has this, this quick parable about two people, and one of them is a Pharisee who his prayer is so much about, like, look at all the right things I'm doing, God. Isn't that great? And I'm so glad that I'm not like these other people that don't observe moral law right. I'm so glad that I'm not like this, especially this dude that's sitting at the back, this tax collector that's, that's sitting in the back row that, that doesn't even want to enter into the foyer, you know, to like, for worship service, right? He just wants to sit way, way, way back on the outside. And then the guy that's back on the outside, the, 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 the tax collector, the unrighteous guy, he just says, have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. Please show your grace to me. And Jesus goes, which prayer do you think God actually heard? As if it weren't obvious. It is our prayers for mercy. It is our prayers of confession. It is our prayers that say, I need relationship with you. I need to be right with you again. Those are the prayers that are heard. Not the prayers of Will you forgive me for this action? Great. Okay, good. I'm glad we had this talk. Bye. Okay, I, that, those, are not, those are not the prayers that lead to transformation. Those are not the prayers that lead to right relationship with God. Richard Foster calls confession a discipline, and he connects the idea of discipline to a corresponding freedom. And simply put, this is what he says. Practicing confession allows me the freedom of receiving access to God's transformative grace. Not just something that forgives, but something that renews, something that restores, something that actually changes my life. And the language of, of, of the psalm constantly looks forward to these times of rejoicing and honoring and teaching and growing, both for David and for others. And, it, and this is not contractual language. It's not like, hey, if you forgive me, I'll do this for you. It's not like David's making a deal with God in the psalm. Instead, it is confession that is able to look beyond the way things are and is able to lay hold of the marvelous possibilities of what grace can do. Sin mires us in who and what we are right now. Confession and its partner repentance that we're going to talk about next week 
Confession allows us to imagine a future again. Confession allows us to imagine a life that is full of what we might be again. Fully right, fully free in the power and the love of the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus. That's why we need it. That's also why confession is considered a corporate act. Confession is not something that, that, that we can do very well by ourselves, just us and God. We need our Nathans. We need the people that come in and say, Hey, I love you. How are you actually doing with this? So that we can say, I'm, I'm not doing very well at all, actually. So that then they can say, let's go to the Father together. Let's do this together. That's one of the things I love the most about Nathan as a prophet in his relationship with David. Is he doesn't just come and give this pronouncement and then like later. He walks with, he walks with David the rest of his life. He walks with David through all of the aftermath and he never leaves him. Not once. Even when he has to be the prophet delivering the message. He doesn't leave David alone. There are times where sin will mire me like sin had mired David so much that he can't imagine anything outside of that box. And everything that he's doing is out of just trying to maintain where he's at. And Nathan comes and helps him imagine a different future. A future where he can get out of the trap that he's made for himself by first having to realize that he's actually put himself in the trap. But that there's a future and a relationship with God that exists outside of where he is. And you and I need people to do that with us. We need people to bring that reality to us and bring that future to us when we can't see it ourselves. And so as we kind of wrap this up today, my prayer for us most, most of all, church, is that we will consider what would it look like if confession was life-giving for me again? Sometimes we don't even want to, you know, and, and we, have to, we have to pray that, that prayer of, Lord, I don't, I don't even want to do this right now, but I want to want it. <laughs> Church, I want you to want confession in your life again for the way that it can free you. I want you to want confession in your life again for the way that it can imagine a future for you. Whatever it is, how great or small, I, I don't think you're ever going to be in a position quite like this in Psalm 51. And yet the need is the same and the desire to be right is the same. And the need for God's grace is the same. And so my, my, my encouragement for you and my prayer for you is, is don't let sin keep you where you are when confession can free you again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of, for the gift of being able to confess. For the gift of, of being able to say, I, I am wrong. And I am not who I need to be. 
Thank you for the freedom that that provides, Lord, because it is the freedom to be honest with you, the freedom to be honest with myself, the freedom to be honest with others so that I may grow. And Lord, I need your grace today. Because it doesn't matter how many classes I take or, or how many degrees I get or whatever. I'm, I am not who I need to be in your eyes. And I never will be. And so God, I need your grace to come into my life and to transform me and to make me into the man, into the husband, into the father, into the minister that you desire for me to be. And I confess my complete inability to do that myself. And so I pray that you will draw me close to you. And I pray that you will continue to bring people into my life that help me to check myself. And thank you for the people that do that for me here at Shelburne regularly. And Lord, I pray that we all can have that same freedom, Lord, to confess to you because we are not who we need to be. And yet you desire to draw us in by your forgiveness and you desire to bring us in to your grace and you desire to transform us in amazing ways. And so, Lord, please help us. to desire to be open to you again, to desire to confess to you again, to desire to let you in to do your work once more. In your holy name.